Once for all, my Savior died. Jesus, I owe you my life. That is so true. Jesus' life and death demand a response. And we see two such responses today in our passage as we continue in the death-defeated series in the Gospel of John. As we look at chapter 19, verse 38 to 42. But before we get there, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to you and know that you hear us. You love to hear the prayers of your people. And I ask God that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us understand your word. Thank you for giving us your scriptures in a language we can understand, but we need your spirit to understand them as well, to get clarity on who Christ is and all that he has done and how that applies in our life. Lord, change us, transform us, we pray. Make us different in 30 minutes from now, from who we are right now. God, only you can do this. This is a work of God. And so that's why we pray to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever been in a spot where you know you ought to do something, but you're afraid. You're afraid of what people might think. You're afraid of getting laughed at, maybe by coworkers or being demoted at work or even being fired from your job. Or maybe you know you're supposed to do something, but you're afraid of what your friends will think. You're afraid of what your family will do. You may even be kicked out of your family. And so there's fear. And if you've ever been in that kind of a spot, you can be encouraged because as we look here at the scripture today, we're going to see two men that were also afraid, that were in a very similar position. They were afraid of losing everything. They were afraid of coming out and being open and honest about their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, the reason why is because they were afraid of everything, everything from losing their livelihoods, their wealth, their reputation, their friends, family, perhaps even their very own lives. Fear had gripped them and they were hiding their faith because they were afraid of losing everything. But thankfully, we see that something moves them forward from fear to faith. Something changes them to say, do you know what? It's worth it. I'm all in. I'm ready. I'm willing to count the cost. I want to follow Jesus no matter what. What moved them from fear to faith? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at today. And as we read in John 19, verse 38, we see that these two men move from fear to faith and make this radical decision to follow Jesus no matter what by simply asking a courageous question. It all starts by asking a courageous question. In verse 38, a man named Joseph of Arimathea asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, this is the first time we're introduced to this man named Joseph. Matthew 27 verse 57 says that he was a wealthy, rich man. Mark 15 43 goes on to say that he was a politically powerful member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews at that time. And yet Luke 23 50 says that he was a righteous man, good and righteous. And he didn't agree with crucifying Jesus. He wasn't a part of that uh, 
decision by the Sanhedrin to crucify Christ. He was a good and righteous man. And that's because John actually says that he had become a disciple of Jesus, but a secret disciple. He was a disciple secretly because he was afraid of the Jews. It says he feared the Jews. And Joseph, he, he was a true follower of Jesus, and yet his fear was greater than his faith. But up until this day only. Everything changes on this day. Now, there was someone else with um, Joseph as well. In verse 39, it says there was another man named Nicodemus. Now, we we know Nicodemus. We ran into him back in chapter 3, verse 1. There we learned that Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he's also a ruler of the Jews. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin like Joseph, so they knew each other. But Nicodemus, he was also called by Jesus the teacher of Israel, which probably meant he was a famous, one of the most renowned rabbis and teachers of the Torah, the Old Testament law, and all the land of Israel. These were very famous, prestigious men. John doesn't let us pass by the fact that in John chapter 3, he references the first time that Nicodemus met Jesus, and that was under the cloak of night, in the dark, privately, in fear. Joseph, or sorry, Nicodemus didn't want to be associated with Jesus yet. He didn't want to be seen with Jesus yet. This is a clear reference to Nicodemus's unbelief in Jesus at this time. He was curious, but he wasn't convinced yet. He was searching, but not believing. But we fast forward from chapter 3 to chapter 7, and we run into Nicodemus again. But this time, instead of privately questioning Jesus in the nighttime, he's openly sympathizing with Jesus, talking to his peers in the Sanhedrin, exhorting them, encouraging them to give Jesus a fair hearing to really get to know who he is and what he said and what he's doing. Of course, they mock him, but Nicodemus, even at this point, beginning to sympathize, is still afraid. He's still afraid of what would happen if he really came out and followed Jesus by faith. And that's why I think John later describes in chapter 12, verse 42 to 43, he says, Many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue or kicked out of the synagogue. Why? For they love the glory that comes from man, rather than the glory that comes from God. They were afraid. Uh, they, will, they were people pleasers. They feared man more than God. <laughs> but here in chapter 19, here at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, where Jesus dies, everything changes for them. They had seen Jesus' ministry. They had heard his teaching. They had witnessed his miracles. And they could testify to the innocence and righteousness by which he lived and had just died, which is in complete contrast to them as Pharisees and being a part of the Sanhedrin, who they claimed to be the pure ones, the separate ones who were to hate sin and to love righteousness. But here they were just a part of a group that openly accused and condemned and demanded the crucifixion of Jesus, the only truly innocent and righteous one. And they said, that's it. We've had enough. 
were ready to follow Jesus. They were ready to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. They were ready to follow Jesus with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They wanted to worship him openly, and they wanted to follow him and honor him publicly. You see, our faith is like that. Faith always comes out. You can't stuff it in and hide it for long. It, it, it can sometimes start slowly, like the rising of the sun in the morning, or it can come quite quickly, like turning on the lights in a room, but it will always come out. Jesus says as much in Matthew 5, 15 to 16, where he says, People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. True faith will always shine before others. And on this day, Joseph and Nicodemus's faith shines brightly and clearly for all to see. They are moved from fear to faith to follow Jesus publicly as their Lord and Savior. And it all starts with Joseph asking a courageous question. He boldly asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, this is no small request. It might seem like a normal request, but it wasn't. It was a request that went against all Roman practice. And this is why in Mark 15, 43, it says Joseph took courage. He took courage. It required courage fueled from his faith to go and ask the unaskable. This is a request that was extremely rare and risky. It was risky because going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus, he was a really, he could be seen as a sympathizer with Jesus who had just been accused of sedition or insurrection or rebellion against Caesar and the Roman Empire. Now, those are serious crimes. And that could cost Joseph his own life. But it was risky for a second reason as well, not just with Rome, but with the Jews. This would publicly identify him with Jesus as a follower and disciple of Christ. And the Sanhedrin would have none of that. They, they believe that Jesus was this false prophet, this heretical imposter. And Joseph, by aligning himself with Jesus, would be accused of the same things and may even suffer the same fate as Jesus at the hand of the Jews. But look how faith moves Joseph to risk it all. He's moved from cowardice to courage. He's moved from hiding his faith to now honoring Christ publicly. And Pilate astoundingly says yes to the request. As Pastor Dad helped us realize last week, this was totally contrary to Roman practice. Typically, Romans would let a crucified person hang on a tree for days to maximize their dishonor, especially those accused of insurrection or sedition or rebellion against the empire itself. But here we see Pilate grants permission to Joseph to have the body of Jesus, a crucified man, accused of sedition, of rebellion against the empire. 
this is totally contrary to practice. Maybe it was because that Pilate actually believed, as he said he did, that Jesus was innocent. He had done no wrong. And maybe it was also because Joseph happened to be a member of the Sanhedrin. That was a very powerful position. Either way, God moves Pilate to agree to something that was so rare. Now, having received permission from Pilate, Joseph now, it says in verse 38, comes to take away the body of Jesus. It's amazing how the Bible says so much in such little space. Just in a few words, it says an incredible amount of what Joseph had to do to take away the body of Jesus. Just imagine, just imagine what it would have been like for for Joseph to leave the court of Pilate with the permission papers in hand and make his way through the streets of Jerusalem on the west side of town and perhaps exit the city wall through the garden gate, uh, which there was a path there. And that path would have slowly, gently descended into a small, shallow valley, which he would probably have taken. And in the middle of that valley was a hill called Golgotha. Now, Golgotha was a, sadly, perfect spot to crucify people because it was a small hill in the middle of this shallow valley, this old quarry, and it was a perfect spot for people all in the valley on the west side of the city to see who was being crucified. But it was also an excellent spot for a disciple to declare his allegiance and loyalty to a crucified Jesus, which is exactly what Joseph was doing. He would have had to ascend and climb that hill, walk up that hill of Golgotha, and hand the centurion on site the permission papers that were given to him by Pilate so that Joseph could receive the body. And I'm sure as he was approaching the centurion and talking with him, he could feel everyone staring at him. He could probably hear people murmuring and and talking about him and what he's doing. What's this man doing? But he kept moving forward by faith. It literally says in Mark 15, verse 46, that he he took him down. He took him down off the cross. Crosses were typically six to seven feet high. And so uh, Joseph could have actually reached Jesus to take him down personally off the cross. Joseph, uh, with everyone's eyes kind of burning into the back of his, uh, of him, probably just this idea of him knowing, everyone's looking at him, begins to remove the, the crown of thorns from Jesus' head. He begins to unfasten and wrench and pull out these nine-inch iron spikes out of Jesus' body. Uh, first, maybe with his feet and, and then eventually his, his hands and then catching the corpse of Christ as it falls off the cross. It says here in verse 39 that Nicodemus also came and joined Joseph, and perhaps they together lifted the lifeless, limp, naked body of Jesus and placed it on the ground or on a, on a cot ready to be carried to the tomb. Jesus' body would have certainly at this point been ashen and and gray, cold to the touch. 
It was covered with cuts and gashes and wounds, bruised and beaten with open sores and open slices all over his body. Joseph and Nicodemus would have had a hard time just finding places for their hands to lift Jesus where their fingers weren't getting into some sort of a cut or wound. Their hands, their arms, their clothes would have been stained and smeared with the Savior's blood. Now let's not forget who these men were. They're Jews. They're Pharisees. They're members of the Sanhedrin. They know what the law says. They know that if they touch a dead man's body, that they will be unclean for seven days, unable to participate in the Sabbath or in the Passover. And yet here they are on the eve of the Sabbath, on the eve of the Sabbath of the Passover, one of the most holy and highest days in the religious calendar of the Jews. They're moved by love. They're they're moved by faith. They're driven by their devotion to lift the lifeless body of their Lord and touch him. And in so doing, they're willing to be unclean because of the one who had made them clean. They were willing to touch the one who had touched and saved them. They are so overcome with Jesus. There was no turning back for them now. They were all in. What's interesting is that traditionally, uh, rabbis, when they died, their disciples would bury them. And so here, here we see Joseph and Nicodemus, rabbis of Israel, renowned teachers, coming to honor Jesus, the rabbi of all rabbis, and to honor him through burial coming to him as his disciples. Here are these teachers of the law, but they're coming to him as their students, as his students to say, you are the one who fulfills the law. You are the one who is the true rabbi. See the humility and the love and the devotion that they are showing and honoring Christ with. And so we see, we see Joseph particularly moving from fear to faith by asking a courageous question. But we also see Nicodemus display his faith as well by bringing a lavish gift, a lavish gift. It says in verse 39 that Nicodemus actually comes with 75 pounds of spices, a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Now, this is about 30 kilograms. This would be like having four large rice bags just full of spices and myrrh. The idea was, this was traditional in the Jewish burial custom, where myrrh and aloes as a spice would be spread and sprinkled all over the body and would be wrapped in linen cloths and sprinkled over it as well. So the whole body and the linen garments would be entirely covered with these spices these fragrant sweet spices that were to counteract the bad smell of the decaying body. One pound would have been lots. Two pounds would have been incredibly generous. 75 pounds would have been over the top lavish. This is something that only kings would receive. You remember that at the birth of Jesus, there was a king who came, a magi from the east, and gave us a gift an offering of myrrh to honor Jesus. Well, here we see 
Nicodemus now coming with myrrh to honor the King Jesus. We also remember Mary, who had come earlier to Jesus with a pound, one pound of nard perfume, a very expensive perfume that she spilled all over and anointed Jesus' feet with that was probably worth one year's wages. Nicodemus comes with 75 pounds of myrrh and spices to anoint or to sprinkle over the body of Christ. This was, this was really a lifetime's worth of wages that Nicodemus was showing and pouring out and generously giving toward the honoring of Jesus Christ. This was because Nicodemus's heart had changed. He was moved from hoarding his wealth to now worshiping the Lord with it. He was now freed. His heart and his hands were now free to give generously toward the Lord and toward his purposes and plans. Much like Zacchaeus was uh, earlier, freed by the power of the gospel. And this is what... This is what I want my heart to be like, to be freed, my heart and hands to be free, to give to the Lord, moved by the gospel, in that all that he has given us, we would give back to him. All of the finances, all of the possessions we've received, all the blessings and gifts that we have received from him, that we would give it back to him as an offering in order for him to use it for his plans and purposes. And what's amazing is that this isn't only seen in our giving of our tithes and offerings to the church, but also to one another as the church. Jesus actually refers to this reality in Matthew 25, verse 40, where he says that when we actually give to one another, when we clothe one another and feed one another, shelter one another and help one another in our time of need. We're actually doing that to Jesus himself. And so here we see Nicodemus being moved by the gospel, his head and his hearts freed to be able to give as he has received. And that's what I'm praying for our hearts as well, especially in this season. What a unique opportunity we have to be the hands and feet of Jesus to one another, and in so doing, as we give to one another and share and help one another, we're actually doing that to Jesus himself. Let us be moved from fear to faith, just like Nicodemus was, and to give generously and lavishly to Christ. You know, lastly, we see here that these two men, yes, they're moved from faith, from fear to faith, by asking a courageous question and bringing a lavish gift but we finally see them do this as well by providing a royal burial, a royal burial. It's interesting in verse 41, we see that near Golgotha, there was a garden. And in the garden, there was a tomb. And in the tomb, there was nothing. Because no one had ever been laid in it. It was empty. In fact, John actually tells us it was a new tomb that Joseph of Arimathea owned. And we know that because Matthew 27, verse 60, highlights the fact that this was the property of Joseph of Arimathea. The fact that the tomb was empty, that makes sense because Joseph is from this Jewish town called Arimathea, about 30 kilometers northwest of, 
of Jerusalem. And so his family would have grown up there. They would have lived and died and been buried all up there. But perhaps because of Joseph's rise to prominence and power and the wealth that he had by being a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, he had purchased a new tomb on the western slopes of Jerusalem, the city of David, which would have been a extravagant, prestigious honor to have in all of Israel. That was an incredible honor to any family. And Joseph now had that. In fact, it says in Matthew 27, verse 16, that this new tomb came with a rolling stone, which only the wealthiest people could afford. Um, these kind of tombs would sometimes just come with a common square uh, stone that would cover the entrance of the tomb. But this one had a rolling stone, which was very rare for only the wealthiest of people. No doubt Joseph had initially planned that his body would be placed in this tomb for his own glory, for his own honor. But everything's changed now. He's met Jesus. And now he is giving his tomb. He's providing this tomb fit for a king to Jesus himself. Now, this is remarkable for a couple of reasons. One, it actually fulfills Old Testament prophecy. From Isaiah 53, verse 9, which is speaking about the Messiah, it says that they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. God is fulfilling this prophecy providentially by orchestrating Jesus' body being buried in a rich man's grave. Only God could have done this and orchestrated this. And so we see God's actually showing Jesus is that Messiah. Jesus is the one who's actually fulfilling Isaiah 53. But the other remarkable thing is that this shouldn't have even happened in the first place because Jesus is a crucified man. Jews considered anyone crucified as being cursed by God, as Pastor Ted reminded us from Deuteronomy 21-23 last week. And so for Jews... If a family member was crucified, they wouldn't bury that person in the family tomb. They would bury them outside of the city in a separate, common, defiled burial site for the crucified. Because they didn't want that body being buried in their family tomb and defiling it and desecrating the bones that were in that tomb. But here's Joseph. Joseph's a radical purist. He's a Pharisee. And he knows what's happened to Jesus' body. It's a crucified body. But here he takes the crucified body and lays it in his own tomb. Why would he do that? Surely it's because he believed that Jesus was innocent and a righteous man. Not cursed of God, but blessed by God. And that it would be a blessing. It would be an honor for him to be buried with Jesus in that same tomb. Really identifying with Jesus as family. A powerful statement and a powerful way to honor Christ. And here are all these ways, in all these ways that Joseph and Nicodemus are honoring Christ as king, we see God actually going above and beyond that, perhaps in ways that they may not have even seen. We read in verse 41 that Jesus is buried in a garden. Now, 
Gardens were not these little plots of dirt in the ground where beans and lettuce would grow. These were large structures, large manicured courtyards full of beautiful trees and plants and flowers. They're very costly and expensive to keep up and only the wealthiest would have them and often only royalty. It reminds us of how in the very beginning in chapter 2 of Genesis that God planted a garden in Eden. It was the garden of God, and that's where God lived and reigned as king over all of his creation. And he commissioned his children, Adam and Eve, to be royal gardeners, to cultivate the garden and to expand its borders all around the globe. And so we see right from, right from the very beginning that kings lived and reigned in gardens. And yet, since the fall, gardens also were the place where kings would be buried when they died. Often tombs were located in the gardens of kings, where the king would be laid and all of his heirs after him to be laid to rest with their fathers, with their ancestors. And here we see that Jesus is buried in a garden. And that's significant because it points to the fact that Jesus is a king, but not just any king, because he's buried not just in any garden. He's buried in a garden that's on the slope of Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of David, where David was given the prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, that one of his heirs one of his sons would be king, and he would be king forever and reign over an everlasting kingdom. This points to the fact that Jesus is that son. He is the king of David. He's his very own son that would reign forever and ever. And he's the one who is buried in this garden in the city of David. Jesus is the Messiah. But if that wasn't enough, it even goes further back. It points even further back from David to the very beginning in chapter 3, where Jesus, being buried in a garden, reminds us that he is the second Adam, who's come to deal with the sin that the first Adam committed in the first garden. You see, back in Genesis 3, Adam rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, and God removed him from the garden so that he might die outside of it. But now Jesus dies outside of the garden so that he might bring back into the garden those removed by sin, that they may come in with him back into the garden. God couldn't walk in the garden with people again until he was buried in the garden to show that the price was paid for the sin that was committed in the garden in the first place. God has made a way for us to come back to him, back into fellowship with him, back into his garden. See the wisdom and the beauty and the knowledge and the power of God to accomplish this. See that all that God has done to show who Jesus is, that he is the crucified king and not just any king, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Let us decide this day to let go of everything to have this king, to worship and honor this 
king. Let us let go of all of our reputation, all of our careers, all of our livelihood, even our lives to have him. Let us follow in the faith of Nicodemus and Joseph, who moved from fear to faith because they knew that Jesus had already done everything for them. They knew They brought Jesus down from the cross because Jesus had been brought down from heaven to save them. Joseph had unfastened Jesus' hands from the cross because Jesus' hands had already unfastened Joseph's sin from his heart. Nicodemus brought spices to sprinkle all over the body of Jesus because Jesus had already sprinkled his cleansing blood all over Nicodemus' soul. They had wrapped Jesus' body in linen clothes because they knew that Jesus had already wrapped them in his own robe of righteousness by faith. They did all of this because Jesus had already done everything for them. Let us then, like Nicodemus and Joseph, move from our fear to faith and follow Jesus No matter what, let us decide today to follow Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made a way back to you. You have made a way back into your presence. You have opened the door of the garden again and have allowed us to enter in through Jesus and Jesus alone. He alone is the king, the only one worthy enough to make a way back into the garden, back into your presence. And you have done it, Jesus. We praise you and we bless you. And we ask God, would you help us now move from fear to faith, to move forward by faith and making a decision today to follow you, come what may, in Jesus' name.